It's a great pleasure to welcome today Anders Oslund, a good friend and leading expert on virtually everything connected to economic and political developments in Russia, Ukraine, and many other countries in the eastern neighborhood of the European Union. Anders, of course, is also a big expert on European and American policies. Having worked in America for a long time, he started his career in Sweden, where he was professor of economics at the Stockholm School of Economics. He is currently a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and previously held similar positions at the Peterson Institute for International Economics and the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, just to mention two of his previous employers. He is the author of many books, and I could strongly recommend them all. And one of my favorite books that Anders has written is Russia's Crony Capitalism, The Path from Market Economy to Kleptocracy. And Anders is also the author of a recent study called What Will Be the Impact if Nord Stream 2 is Completed? Which is exactly what we are going to talk about today. So Anders, thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you, Fredrik. Always good to be with you. So I wanted us to start the discussion about where we stand with Nord Stream 2 right now. So a state of play. So work to finish this pipeline restarted some months ago after a period when US sanctions forced some companies to cancel the participation in the construction of the pipeline. Comments from Moscow, Berlin and Vienna over recent weeks suggest that Nord Stream 2 will soon be ready. And since the Biden administration has decided not to go ahead with new sanctions, many observers say that this is now a done deal, that Nord Stream 2 will become operable and probably operable in the foreseeable future. There are still political voices who say that it can or even should be blocked. And these calls got stronger after the poisoning of Alexei Navalny last summer. And they resurfaced again after Belarus forced a Ryanair flight to land in Minsk so they could capture a journalist and activist, Roman Krostasevich. So if we start there, Anders, where do we stand with Nord Stream 2? Is it soon going to be operable? No, it will take at least uh, half a year in the very most favorable circumstances for Gazprom to get it uh, operative and probably a year or so if it goes ahead. So there are many hurdles on the way. First of all, there are the U.S. sanctions, and the U.S. is a sanctioning or threatening to sanction certifiers, insurers, and the pipe layers. And the pipe laying stopped in December 2019 because of a first U.S. sanction as part of that year's defense bill, and now a much tougher sanction bill was adopted at the end of last year as defense bill for, for this year, which will hit everybody who touch, touches it, if unless the U.S. administration grants a waiver for it, which happened now with regard to entities, Nord Stream 2 AG, which is a fully owned Gazprom company in Souk, and with regard to Matthias Varnik, Putin's old Stasi friend, who is the CEO of Nord Stream AG and uh, Nord Stream 2 AG, which are two separate uh, companies, uh, probably in order to avoid sanctions on the Nord Stream 1. 
So the first is the US sanctions, which can still be imposed instantly, and then the whole project stops, and it doesn't matter how much better has been built. Then we have a complicated process of certification, and the US can block that by not allowing certifying companies to, to do that. And then the European Commission can not approve of the operation. It's also possible that the German government stopped it. It's a complete possibility. It's less likely than anything else for two reasons. One is political reasons. This is very much a social dem democratic uh, project in Germany, but only as Armin Laschet, the new CDU leader, is also strongly in favor of Nord Stream 2. While, for example, Norbert Röttgen, the CDU chairman of the Foreign Policy Committee in the Bundestag, is uh, strongly against it. And then the next step in Germany is that uh, Germany has uh, Bundestag elections on the 12th of September. And the Greens are likely to be one of the two biggest parties and to be a substantial part of the next ruling coalition. And we are, they are dead against Nord Stream 2. So Germany could also say no to it. So in short, the US can block it by really imposing a sanction. Germany can change policy, probably after elections. And the European Commission can refuse to approve of the operation of Nord Stream to after it's been. What Putin said on Friday was that they had completed the first pipe that is put down all the pipes for it, but they had not combined the pipes and that takes a couple of weeks extra and it's a substantial work and there are two pipes in Nord Stream 2 and the second pipe is not completed and then it has to be certified and it has to be tested. So um, it's unlikely that this can be, uh, become operative uh, this year. And some of the supporters of Nord Stream 2, especially some of those that you refer to in Germany, including on the political side and on the commercial side with some of the companies that are backing the entire product itself, they almost gives the impression that it's now inevitable that Nord Stream 2 is going to become operable and it's going to start to deliver gas pretty soon. And they will also say that we have had sort of this discussion recurring over several years now and the project has managed to survive despite the fact that we have also had big incidents which have provoked political reactions also in Germany that have delayed the entire product itself. So they seem to be pretty sure of themselves that this pipeline is actually going to come alive pretty soon. Why are they so certain if we have all these sort of uncertainties around both EU sanctions against European political reactions? Because it's good policy from their point of view. The more certain they, they seem, the higher the probability might be. I don't think that this is correct. The Nord Stream 2 supporters are spending millions of dollars here in Washington each year on lobbying companies. So this is the biggest lobbying post in, in Washington. So they are working extremely hard and they get very little out of it with regard to the Congress. The US Congress is dead against Nord Stream 2. And this concerns both the parties. Three of the leading 
democratic uh, senators in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee ha have repeatedly spoken up uh, against it, and it's uh, similar in the House of Representatives. Resistance against Nord Stream 2 is one of the most bipartisan issues uh, on the Hill. In the administration, it's uh, more difficult because one of President Biden's main ideas has been that he must improve the relationship with allies. And as the White House seems to see it, Germany seems to be the foremost ally. So therefore, there is strong resistance to do anything that is not approved of by Germany. I think that this is the main impediment here in Washington. And there also seems to be that the National Security Council pushes more in favor of it than the State Department. So there seems to be a difference between these two entities here in Washington. But if you look upon Europe, it's three countries essentially that are in favor of Nord Stream 2. That's Germany, where the CDU is not as strongly in favor of it as the SPD and the uh, link and the uh, alternative uh, for Germany, while the Greens are dead against it. And uh, FDP is uh, uh, mixed. Austria is uh, strongly in favor. And uh, Austria is very much uh, a place where former uh, top politicians tend to work for Russian state uh, companies uh, afterwards. And then it is the benevolence because of, uh, of Shell. And the five companies involved, two German companies, the Uniper and Winterschall, Austrian, OMB, Royal Dutch Shell in Holland, and then Enke. But France has an ambivalent attitude to Nord Stream 2, more like this. If the project is being carried out, then we want to be part of it, but we are not really strongly committed to it. It's worth underlining that Nord Stream 2 will be fully owned by Gazprom. And these five uh, European companies are just contributing with 950 million euros in loans, not in um, equity. So Nord Stream 2 is therefore a fully owned company by Gazprom. And this is, of course, completely against the, the third uh, energy package. And uh, in the normal case, the European Commission should have been able to put down its foot and say that this is not uh, acceptable. The East Europeans, by and large, are against it, in particular the three Baltic states and uh, Poland, but also, for example, Italy uh, opposes it because they say, why is uh, Nord Stream allowed when South Stream was not allowed? Uh, why is Germany supposed to get the transit revenues? and uh, North uh, Italy. So there is also a North-South conflict that uh, is not uh, emphasized much since it, this is more of a commercial nature than, than a, a political nature. So the short answer is the supporters of uh, uh, Nord Stream 2 are few and far between. They are in very important position, but there's no guarantee that they will win. I mean, I think this is one of the strange things with not just uh, the second pipeline. I think we had a similar situation with the first pipeline as well, where over time, if we just look at Nord Stream 2, I think the European opposition to it has grown. And you see also more politicians being a bit more outspoken. And of course, it's difficult not to do it, given 
the political developments in Russia, their interference in other countries, what happened after the war in, in Ukraine and, and the annexation of Crimea, for instance. As I said initially, now we've had the poisoning of Navalny that also led to more voices in Europe being heard when it came to basically stopping it. But over time, I have had difficulties understanding the political logic behind this in Germany, because as you say, even in Germany, the supporters of this project are pretty far and few between. You can speak to people like Norbert Röttgen and you will hear sort of a, a, a view which is strongly against uh, Nord Stream 2. You will have many other security foreign policy experts that clearly understands that the rest of Europe now look to Germany to be a force of instability in the entire European region by making itself and by extension Europe more dependent on piped gas that is going to come from Russia. So the understanding has been there. So why do you think a country like Germany struggled to come up with a more consistent response, which is also un sort of more understanding of the huge problems that exist with this entire project? Yeah, I completely agree with your general outlook here. Germany has all along been the most European country. It has been the most multilateral big country in Europe. And here it's doing something that is completely unilateral. It is going against a big majority of the EU members. So where does it come from? Well, there is a substantial pro-Russian grouping in Germany, in both in business and politics, but I would focus on one person, Gerhard Schröder. He decided on Nord Stream 1 in the fall of 2005, after he had lost the election to Angela Merkel, and then immediately after he then had to resign. He uh, became chairman of the shareholders committee on Nord Stream Argen. We don't know how much he earned there, but uh, later on he also became chairman of Rosneft, and there he has an official salary of $600,000. Nord Stream Argen, Nord Stream 2 Argen are private companies uh, where these uh, details are not available, but we may presume that he receives about $2 million a year. It might be, be more because these Russian state companies often pay huge bonuses to top people. And who were his closest collaborators? Frank-Walter Steinmeier was his assistant for many years and chief of staff in various positions when he was in Niedersachsen. And uh, the second person below him was Sigmar Gabriel, who later became Minister of Economy, Deputy uh, Chancellor and uh, Minister for, for Foreign Affairs. So th this small group has been pushing it most of all. There are many others, but these are the, the really the top people who have been engaged in promoting Germanist uh, cooperation with Putin. And since uh, CDU has been in a uh, coalition agreement with S uh, SPD for many years, it's uh, difficult for CDU and Angela Merkel to stand up against it. Chancellor Merkel used to say that Nord Stream 2 is purely commercial project, which it is not because it doesn't give money to, to anybody. So it's a purely geopolitical project. 
and the other aspect of it is that it uh, gives uh, huge revenues to Putin's cronies, uh, Gennady Timchenko and the brothers Arkady and Boris Rothenberg, who are the, uh, whose companies are the main contractors of uh, Nord Stream 2. I've never managed to understand how these companies and people who are have been sanctioned by the, the U.S. since March 2014, how they are uh, allowed uh, to con construct uh, Nord Stream uh, 2, but, but that is the situation. So let's look at that claim that Gazprom is purely a commercial project. And if we look at sort of some of the economics around it, what I have some difficulties understanding is... Why, sort of, why would there be an economic motivation for Nord Stream 2? So on the one hand, if we look at sort of some of the trends and you sketch some of these trends in your paper as well, which is that European consumption of gas and Russian gas are going to decline as the economies move toward energy sources that are non-fossil fuel energy sources. We have lots of other pipelines. I mean, the first things to say is that sort of there is already a pipeline structure going through Ukraine and Belarus that serves Europe with gas from Russia. And I mean, there has been claims over the years that the quality of this infrastructure has been poor, but, but there's also been investments made in making it a lot better than it was sort of around 2008, 2009. There are Perhaps the most profound development that we've seen in the gas market generally over the past decade is, of course, the, the growing use of LNG in, in Europe, that we have more LNG terminals and, and that also consumers seems to be more interested to move towards LNG-based gas, not least because you can get away from sort of the type of fixed distribution capacity to the market that a, sort of a pipeline structure entails, and that means more flexibility on marketing and contracting, etc. So with this development, both declining demand for gas with a development towards LNG, with uh, already strong capacity for piped gas coming into Europe already, I have difficulty seeing what the economic motivation would be. So help me to enlighten. So what, what, why would you even make that type of claim that there is an economic or commercial purpose for it? Yeah, it's quite amazing, but you can say that uh, anything that has to do with uh, uh, Gazprom is uh, uncommercial. This was a, a company that had a market capitalization in May 2008 of $369 billion. Today, it's uh, hovering between 60 and $70 billion. And all this time, uh, Putin's former assistant, Alexei Miller, has been CEO since uh, 2001. No chief executive in the world has destroyed as much capital as Alexei Miller and is continuing to do so. And uh, the fundamental thing about Gazprom is that uh, its main purpose is to enrich Putin's friends. Four top cronies, Gennady Timchenko, Boris Rothenberg, Arkady Rothenberg, and Yuri Kavachuk. Yuri Kavachuk takes care of the, the financial and media assets of uh, Gazprom while Timchenko and the Rothenberg deliver gas pipelines, and uh, Timchenko is also producing gas in Novatec, that then gets a privileged uh, gas life and uh, support from Gazprom. So this is a crony business. And how do you get money most easily out of Gazprom? You build another pipeline. 
the pipelines are there in order to enrich Putin's friends and not to deliver gas. And altogether today, the numbers are quite clear, as you say. Gazprom in 2019 delivered 168 billion cubic meters to the European Union countries. Putin uses higher numbers because he includes uh, talks about Europe, not the European Union. And then he has also uh, primarily Turkey, but also a lot of uh, small Balkan countries that are buying gas from uh, Russia, but are not members of the European Union. So he comes up to 200 BCM. But uh, what is happening now is that this year, the expectation is 135 BCM and then it is going to fall. Gazprom has all along said that Europe will consume more gas. I remember in the mid-2000s. The then they said that in 10 years, consumption in Europe of gas and Gazprom's deliveries will increase by 50%. It never happened. It has been a pretty stagnant while it fluctuates from year to year a bit. And in effect, the Ukrainian pipeline is enough for the Russian uh, deliveries to Europe for uh, the foreseeable future. On top of that, it's a 33 BCM that goes from Belarus and uh, Poland from Jamal. Nord Stream 1 is 55 BCM. And on top of that, uh, Nord Stream 2 would come with 55 BCM. And there is also a Blue Stream to, uh, through the Black Sea uh, to, to Turkey that was built long ago, and Turk Stream that is now being uh, built that uh, will have a capacity of uh, 31 and a half uh, BCM. So altogether, Russia will have a gas pipeline capacity that is twice as much or slightly more than uh, is needed to deliver the, the gas to Europe. There's no question that uh, Russia will increase its gas applies to Europe. Putin just on Friday said that Russia will increase its supplies by the 50 BCM in the next decade, at the same time as Europe will decrease its energy consumption, including the gas consumption. So what Russia says on these things is simply taken out of the air, and it has been the case for the the last 20 years at, at least, and we should expect it to be so in the future also. They, they have a new credibility apart from their um, strictly published uh, statistics, which are actually quite uh, quite decent. But all the public statements uh, are, and all the forecasts uh, are uh, highly uh, doubtful. Let us move to national security issues, and you've already mentioned, of course, that there is a strong geopolitical component to the Nord Stream pipelines, of course. So if we sort of flip this discussion around a bit and look at when we're going to look at the consequences uh, for national security in Europe. So from the viewpoint of the Kremlin, what geopolitical and security advantages will they get from the two Nord Stream pipelines? And how do you think Russian leaders intend to use that or those advantages that the pipelines can give them? Well, first of all, it is a danger for Ukraine. Without the pipeline, Russia can under, uh, freely undertake uh, military operations in Ukraine without risking its uh, very substantial gas uh, revenues from Europe. Gazprom suffered badly 
financially from uh, cutting off gas to Europe in January 2006 and again in January 2009. Then altogether 16 countries were hit and the cut lasted for two weeks. In particular badly hit was Bulgaria. And you can say that gas cut in uh, 2009 flipped the European Union so that the third energy package was, uh, was adopted. So it's a thanks to Gazprom that Europe has really moved on so that we have now lots of uh, converters, we have lots of pipelines, we have lots of LNG, and we have lots of storage. So that's where Gazprom has actually greatly helped Europe to become much more market-oriented in the, the gas sector. And uh, in particular, the 2009 cap meant that the Gazprom could never come back as an increasing gas power in, in Europe. This was uh, quite uh, devastating for uh, Gazprom. And uh, therefore, we are where we are. And uh, what would happen in terms of security? There are two Western countries that uh, have never suffered anything from gas cap. That's Finland and it's Germany. So these are the two countries that say, uh, we can say that Gazprom is reliable. Nobody else can say so. Uh, the Baltic countries have uh, suffered, uh, and Ukraine has suffered the worst, uh, but uh, all post-Soviet countries, uh, for example, Georgia and Moldova have, uh, not to mention Turkmenistan, have suffered badly uh, from uh, Gazprom. So Gazprom is very unreliable in all commercial relations. And what would happen if 80% of the gas to Europe from Russia is going from one pipeline system? Do you think that the Kremlin could stay away from the adaptation to cutting it off during a nice cold January in, in Europe for one political reason or the other? So the first security reason is the Ukraine. The second is Europe. This is very dangerous for Europe's security. And looking then at those who are going to be dependent on the gas that will be distributed through Nord Stream 2, what, what countries are we talking about? Is it only Germany or is it other countries as well? Germany's consumption is about 40 BCM a year, and this would be 110 BCM. So the whole of Eastern Europe would be supplied by the Nord Stream system. And uh, very little would go through some other pipeline. I presume that it will be through Turk Stream and that nothing will go through Ukraine. And uh, probably uh, Belarus and Poland will also be cut off. So this means that there are a number of countries that in the event that there will be a political decision to cut the supply, they will not have the capacity to quickly substitute right, the, the gas that will be distributed through the, the Nord Stream pipelines. Well, I would presume that a natural market reaction will be that we will see more development of LNG. It's quite interesting to see that in the three Baltic countries, Gazprom had joint ventures owning the pipeline system. And since the three Baltic countries are complying with EU legislation, they have fully unbundled. And uh, Gazprom has actually given up uh, their uh, pipeline ownership without any particular uh, problems, and they have also lost the markets. These markets are too small uh, for 
a big pompous company like Gazprom to be concerned. So in particular, Lithuania has got in several years now an LNG terminal and they are largely living on LNG because Gazprom doesn't manage to win any auctions in Lithuania. They are too little commercially oriented. So even if Gazprom has very low production costs and transportation costs as is now, they cannot utilize these because this is not really a commercial company, but a company for the enrichment of the Putin elite. If you talk to people that are close to Chancellor Merkel, they are going to say that perhaps not that they have a good faith agreement, but at least that they have an agreement with the Kremlin suggesting that there will be compensations for Ukraine as the gas distribution for Germany is now going to take a different route. What do you make of of those claims? Well, uh, Putin mentioned this in his speech on uh, Friday about uh, Russia has uh, an agreement with Ukraine for five years to deliver at least 40 BCM through Ukraine a year, and he said that it could even be a little bit more, but that, of course, depended on Ukraine's goodwill. And if you look upon how Earth gas is now being transported through, through Ukraine, it's extremely difficult for the Ukrainians to manage a small volume, because Gazprom uses the Ukrainian transit pipeline during the peak period, that is in, in the winter, and very little in the summer. And you need a certain minimum volume in order to keep big uh, gas pipeline system alive. So what uh, easily could happen is that Gazprom tries to deliver it to 40 BCM in the winter and then stops in the summer, and then the pipeline system cannot work. And uh, then uh, Gazprom says, Sorry, you see, the Ukrainians are unreliable, unlike uh, we, the reliable uh, Gazprom. So there are so many ways in which uh, Gazprom can cause problems with uh, Ukraine so that it uh, can blame Ukraine for whatever happens. So I think that we should expect a big trouble there. And what is the viewpoint from Kiev on Europe now? I mean, we've seen, of course, over a longer period of time that they have been hugely concerned, of course. But what is their expectation for sort of Europe's response towards Ukraine now, given sort of the most likely scenario then that Ukraine is going to lose a lot of income, uh, has already lost income because of, of changes in pipelines and distribution to Europe? it's going to become even more subject to unpredictable Kremlin actions, sort of the broad uncertainties that that exist around what the Russian government is going to do in the event that they see there's a political advantage from messing around either with Ukraine or with uh, final European consumers. We had Ukrainian leaders in Paris a few months ago where they were trying to raise concern about this, but um, I didn't get the impression that they feel that they were heard. What's your sort of impression of how the Ukrainians are planning to react to this, what they can do? They can do very little. And uh, there is an increasing uh, disappointment in Ukraine with the West in general and with the EU in particular. A major problem is that the EU does not have one voice. There are a number of reasonably equal representatives of the European Union EU policy on Ukraine, and they um, 
talk about different things and they do so in a different fashion. Some are strongly in favor of the Ukraine, some are, are not. And the total impact of EU policy on Ukraine is that it's difficult to distinguish what it is and it's not clearly formulated. U.S. policy during the last four years under President Trump has by and large been absent, and um, or at least during the last two years, uh, because of a domestic scandal in the U.S. that involved uh, Russian uh, agents in Ukraine, as the U.S. Uh, sanctions have made clear. And specific concerns here are now Nord Stream 2, where the Ukrainians are disappointed with uh, Germany, it is, of course, the uh, Normandy group and the, the Minsk uh, negotiations where uh, Germany and France uh, uh, did very substantial work uh, in 2014-2015 in order to stop the war when um, the U.S. was not engaged. But uh, now it, the whole thing has uh, gone, uh, stalled and there doesn't seem to be any initiative. And uh, Russia, frankly, just takes the U.S. Uh, seriously in military terms. And another disappointment now is that Ukraine has not been invited uh, to, the, uh, to the NATO summit, nor has uh, Georgia. And the Ukrainian government, that is President Zelensky himself, has um, strongly spoken in favor of uh, a membership action plan, a map. Um, and uh, now it's pretty clear that nothing in favor of uh, Ukraine will come out of the NATO summit, because one can blame it. Ukraine and the Ukrainian government for many things they haven't done in terms of reforms, but uh, they see very little support uh, in foreign policy from uh, the European Union, but also from the US in this situation. Let me follow up with on, on that point, but it's a question from someone in the audience asking, I mean, there is a, a NATO summit coming up. We're going to have also a meeting between President Biden and President Putin. Where do you think these issues sits in the American administration right now? So on the one hand, we see increasing activity from Secretary of State Antony Blinken. On the other hand, we see a little bit of confused language coming from the U.S. administration of what they see as sort of a workable strategy for Ukraine and Europe going forward. What do you think the American position here is? Well, uh, the general picture here in Washington is that President Biden is very cautious before the planned summit with President Putin on the 16th of June in Geneva. And this is exactly the wrong way of dealing with the Kremlin in general and President Putin in particular. At the same time, Russia is pushing one a cyber attack after the other as this is going on. And to believe that organized crime group operating from Russia can do so without the knowledge of FSB is just impossible. So this FSB is a very sophisticated organization when it comes to cyber. So they must have, if not complete control, at least the complete knowledge of what is going on and should be able to stop this instantly. And the U.S. is not saying this, but they are saying that private organized crime groups in Russia are probably behind, which is a sign of weakness. We saw in late April that two big U.S. naval ships that were about to go into the Black 
democracy uh, turned around. And uh, while Russia had put a lot of ships into the Black Sea, this was completely wrong. And somebody in the White House apparently thought that one shouldn't provoke the Russians. You don't provoke the Russians by anything but uh, being too weak. So this was a a straightforward provocation to to Russia to do something. On the positive side, all the top people in uh, Washington they called their Ukrainian counterparts and top counterparts in Europe and also uh, to some extent in uh, Moscow uh, when Russia was doing its big build up uh, around Ukraine. Say that there were about 20 top level phone calls in this uh, connection and uh, across the Atlantic. And uh, this was quite substantial. And I can't remember that I've seen uh, such a US uh, operation. But two big things that I mentioned before, it's that the US waived the sanction on Nord Stream 2, Page, and also that the US has not done anything for Ukraine at the NATO summit. Now, yesterday, it was announced that there will be a meeting between President Biden and President Zelensky in the early fall. Uh, so it seems that the White House is trying to do some compensation Of course, it matters that the National Security Council, for domestic uh, political reasons, was fully manned from the beginning. And uh, now the State Department has only the odd undersecretary, most notably Victoria Newland as undersecretary for policy, and uh, about no acting secretary, and essentially no ambassadors have been appointed. So there's a big hole in the State Department uh, manning. And one would uh, suspect that uh, when the State Department uh, gets uh, more staff, that uh, we will see an improvement simply in the management of US foreign policy. It's an enormous problem that uh, 1,200 top officials have to be confirmed by the Senate. And in the first four, uh, 100 days, only 44 nominees were approved by by the Senate. And this means that the the U.S. is functioning very poorly during the first year of a new uh, president, and that's when you can really do things. Very good. So let us move on and uh, talk about Europe's energy market a bit. So, I mean, as we've talked about, Nord Stream 2 has faced some opposition in Europe from some EU governments and also from the European Commission that for a while at least claimed that the pipeline goes against the political and economic intentions of gas and energy market diversification in Europe. For quite some time now, it has been the strategic ambition in Europe to get a more diversified supply of gas and a market that is more flexible and moves along with the spot market development for gas. And this, of course, was a development that particularly Gazprom disliked. And this also came on the back of the third energy package. It came on the back of a competition policy investigation into Gazprom. And, of course, a longer policy on the part of Europe that we want to have unbundling between producers and the owners of the distribution channels. So... If we now look towards the combined effect of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, do you think this is going to provide some new market power for Gazprom? I mean, in a way it does, but in a way it may not do it. The question here becomes, 
will Gazprom be able sort of to go back to its past practices of contracting with suppliers in a way that basically lead us into bad market structure and to bad contracts that are going to keep consumers held back for a pretty long period of time? I see a certain danger in it, but I'm not too worried about it. Of course, these five European energy companies that have joined here, they hope for some kind of cartel, which will allow them to charge higher prices. So this is an attempt to undermine the EU energy policy, as you say. But I must say that I'm quite impressed with EU energy policy when it comes to gas sector. And... The proof of it is that uh, the gas prices uh, today are about half of what they they were be- before 2014, and they are staying there. Gazprom always emphasized that uh, LNG comes for a very small part of uh, the gas supply to Europe. I emphasize that uh, LNG is today the, uh, the price setter. Often, LNG to Europe is sold below cost, but that doesn't matter. Uh, the important thing is that the LNG suppliers are prepared to set lower prices than uh, Gazprom and others uh, are prepared uh, to offer. So therefore, LNG drives down the price and uh, Europe is benefiting from that. How much uh, gas that comes from LNG doesn't really matter. What uh, does matter is that LNG is freely available and that uh, much of it is being uh, delivered on the spot market because a lot of LNG is still delivered on long contracts. In particular, Qatar has insisted on keeping contracts that are quite similar to the Gazprom contract as far as possible since Qatar was the first big exporter of gas. But the market is improving all the time. So I think that there will be some through back, but I do hope that European Commission, in particular the market uh, commissioner, will be strong enough to stand up against it. Going back to that old competition policy and the antitrust case that were up a couple of years ago, I mean, that concerned also the effect on market prices that would come from basically having opaque ownership structures between distribution and retail sections of the market. And of course, Gazprom was involved in that. I mean, do, do you see that there is that particular type of problem here as well, that sort of we've tried to move towards sort of unbundling the ownership structures here between retailers and, and producers and, and distributors. But now sort of we, I mean, if I understand you correctly, we're going to have Gazprom not just owning Nord Stream 2 and the pipeline that goes in. They're also the ones who are going to deliver the gas on these particular pipeline. And that seems to me goes against the entire philosophy behind the energy market reforms that Europe did. Indeed, uh, and uh, if I understand it rightly, there has been some compromise between, on the one hand, Germany and Gazprom, on the other hand, uh, the European Commission, that uh, further energy package does not apply uh, to territories outside of the European Union. So that there is a negotiation of how the last very bit of Nord Stream 2 is being treated. So, uh, of course, as you say, this is completely against uh, European energy policy, and it's only because of massive German lobbying in the, within the European Union 
institution, particularly in the commission, that this has been uh, possible. So this is really a shame. This is damaging EU energy policy. All right. Uh, picking up two questions from the audience. The first one is on US sanctions, and it says that my impression from the decision that came from the Biden administration just a couple of months ago is that they are most likely not going to do anything in the future that may have the consequence of damaging Germany and, and Germany's dependency on Nord Stream piped gas in the future. Is my impression correct? I don't think that this is quite uh, correct because any U.S. administration has to manage its relationship with uh, Congress. And I understand that because of Nord Stream 2, there's been about 20 holds on senior national security officials uh, put so that they, uh, they cannot be discussed or confirmed in, in the Senate. We know that there were holds on uh, the top people in the State Department and on the CIA or still burns, and uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, had issued a very strong statement in order to release two of these um, holes, but there are many more. The, the Congress can block the administration very substantially, and it's not obvious to me that the U.S. administration can um, manage to get it through, since it's a strong bipartisan majority that uh, support uh, the very tough sanctions on non-stream 2. Uh, and I should also emphasize that U.S. sanctions, when they are complete blocking sanctions, what is called ISDN list here designation, they are very severe because that means that you cannot operate in dollars. And any international company operates in dollars because almost two thirds of all international payments are being made in dollars. And this concerns in particular raw materials such as energy, because there's a lot of churning that these products are normally bought and sold, bought and sold on the commodity market back and forth four times or so. And then it matters that you have high liquidity and you have higher liquidity in dollars than in anything else. And each dollar passes through the, the three main money banks in New York, JP Morgan, City, and BNY Mellon. And these banks are now forced by the, the US Treasury to have strict compliance. So if sanctioned company tries to do a transaction through these uh, banks, they will report it to the financial police of uh, the Treasury, FinCEN, and it's not necessary that FinCEN takes action against uh, everything, but the banks will be highly reluctant to deal with a sanction company. And uh, therefore, uh, a sanctioning by the US Treasury is a very serious impediment. And we saw, for example, that the Swiss company, Allseas, that was laying a pipe until December 2019, stopped instantly when they heard that there would be sanctions. Now there have been several certifiers and insurers that have quietly withdrawn from the pipe laying. So the two ships that are laying pipes now are Russian ships, Akademikersky and Fortuna, and both are sanctioned by the US, but the pipes are lying in the German Mecklenburg port of Mukran, and they are then being transported by Russian ships 
also Fortuna and Academic Chelsky, and these uh, transport uh, ships are not uh, sanctioned by the US. They should have been. Uh, a couple of them have been sanctioned, but there are at least a, a dozen of them doing, doing these uh, jobs. So US sanctions can be very severe, much more severe than people first realize. Very good. So final question, Anders. Time is running out, and uh, this is also from the audience, and it may also be a question that requires a longer answer, but he- here it is. What is Gazprom's long game when it comes to its own business model of supplying gas to Europe? You basically said, referring to you, Anders, that this is not a, a future market that is going to see a lot of growth. So what is the plan here? Are they just going to let the pipelines to rot on the bottom of the Baltic Sea? Or what other strategies will exist for those people who have used Gazprom just for the purpose of enriching themselves? What's going to be the next strategy for their survival with Europe? Are they going to build even more pipelines to us in the future? Yes, the aim of the pipelines is to enrich the, the people around Putin. So then if these rust away, then you need to be, build new pipelines. So this would adjust to their benefit. So perhaps they would not be so upset. And I should add here that the Gazprom and also the Transnet oil pipeline company want to take as much as possible of the transport uh, on Russian territory. So the Baltic pipeline system is now taking oil uh, to the, the area around St. Petersburg and have a cut out, for example, Lithuania and it's uh, cutting out uh, the uh, oil pipeline that is going uh, through Ukraine to Central Europe. So these are activities that are going on in parallel with the gas activity, but they are much less political and appear less uh, less dubious than what we are seeing in the in the gas area. But the main thing about Gazprom is that this is a very conservative company. It does what it has done. What it has done is that it produces gas in West Siberia and it transports it in pipelines to Europe. It has not built LNG plants. It took over LNG plants, or half of it, in Sakhalin to sell at the price set by Gazprom. And uh, it is not going into non-conventional gas because it has so much uh, cheap gas uh, available. It is uh, Novatec, which is a much, while it's a crony company, it is a much uh, better company than uh, uh, Gazprom, which is producing LNG at Gamal and exporting it uh, to China. Gazprom will export some gas uh, to China but it has been forced to take the whole cost of the building the pipeline uh, on itself, and it is not going to transport much uh, to China. So you can say that the Gazprom is really captive of the European gas market, and Europe should utilize this uh, to squeeze the uh, Gazprom rather than the other way around. Very good. Thank you so much, Anders, for taking the time to spend an hour with us and really enlightening us on so many different aspects of Nord Stream 2, and not just Nord Stream 2, but many other aspects of the gas market and, of course, gas trade between Russia and Europe. It's been a great pleasure to see you again, Anders, and thank you so much and hope to see you in Europe soon.